0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Adrienne G. Perry about her essay, Fleche sur Moi, which appears in issue 23 of The Common. Adrian G. Perry grew up in Wyoming, earned her MFA from Warren Wilson College, and earned her PhD in literature and creative writing from the University of Houston. From 2014 to 2016, she served as the editor of Gulf Coast. A Hedgebrook alumna, she is also a Kimbelio Fellow and a member of the Rabble Collective. Adrian's work has appeared or is forthcoming in Copper Nickel, Black Warrior Review, Indiana Review, Meridians, and elsewhere. She teaches at Villanova University. Adrian G. Perry, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. Would you set the scene for our conversation to sort of describe where you're calling from now so we can imagine it?
1: Well, I am calling from uh, Mercersburg, Pennsylvania, which is in South Central Pennsylvania. And I live at Mercersburg Academy, which is a boarding school, a high school for students in ninth through twelfth grade, um, all genders. And I'm in a boys dorm. So I live with 40 boys that I (laughs) don't do that often, but I can hear them uh, and hear their music. And it's a really beautiful part of the country, um, kind of nestled between two low mountain ranges here. I think on one side might be the Tuscaroras and on the other side, farther off, um, the Appalachian Mountains. So it's really green right now. The grounds look beautiful. And I am in like a just an office with um, books and plants and tea around me, so.
0: Well, that sounds perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to start off with a reading from your essay. Would you read the first few paragraphs for us?
1: I'd be happy to. He pulled up as I walked on the side of a busy Lyon road, the type that becomes a highway once it hits the outskirts of town. Ignoring the thick traffic behind him, he stalked me slowly in a compact car, beckoned to me through his open window across the empty passenger seat. I had just called home to the States and hadn't reached anyone. In a square outside a large church, likely Catholic, I stared through the sides of a glass phone booth onto the late July day. Green hovered somewhere high, probably the leaves of plane trees and their shadows, as well as bright coins of light i had just eaten a bag of cherries I'd washed by pouring bottled mineral water into their plastic sack. Wet, red, and sweet, I consumed almost enough of the fruit to make myself sick. Between Paris and Aix-en-Provence, one of my closest friendships had dissolved. Elle and I knew each other from Cheyenne, though our intimacy only flourished during our college years in Amherst. The alchemy of sharing tea rolls and conversation, of steadily revealing our wounded, ecstatic emotional selves on long car rides around the Pioneer Valley, had quickly deepened an adolescent acquaintance into an early adult friendship. There was something wild and charming about Elle, her body stories and her good table manners. I have the image of her tall, slim frame striking power poses in the kitchen I shared with my older sister and young niece. For two years, Elle's company was a hand-knit shawl draped around my shoulders. The sudden dissolution of our friendship and its summer travel plans, first at Paris, then Aix-en-Provence and Dijon, left me feeling my company, my very being, was unwanted. An insecure 23-year-old prude, I made the people around me feel guilty for hunting their pleasure.
0: Thank you for reading that. I just love that last sentence so much. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. For our listeners who may not have read your essay yet, could you sort of just summarize what the piece is about?
1: Yeah, I think the piece, I see it as being about two things, primarily. Um, maybe overall, it's about intimacy, different kinds of intimacy. Um, but one thread of this essay is about, you know, a younger Adrian traveling alone, feeling very lonely and kind of out to sea in Dijon and um, having an early sexual encounter um, with a stranger. So there's that and just kind of how that moment um, unfolds and what you know I figured out about myself at the time. And then this other thread of the essay, which is related um, and is in some ways the kind of occasion for me even to be in Lyon um, at that time. I might've said Dijon earlier, but I met Lyon. Um, was just this, you know, a friend breakup which I've come to understand I'm not the only person to <laughs> experience and be devastated by. Um, but just sort of thinking about um, the dissolution of that friendship and, and also the role that sort of sex and desire played in seeing that friendship um, dissolve. So those are two things that I think it's about on kind of the most, the obvious levels.
0: Mm-hmm. So what, can you tell us a little bit about like what inspired you to start work on the essay, like how that first draft came together, how you got the idea for it?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about this when I saw your questions. So I was in, I think it was summer 2019. It had to be because, you know, we were traveling and I was with my sweetheart in Spain. They were at a conference and I was tagging along and uh, we had a conversation sitting outside one day at lunch And they'd made a comment about um, women and sexual desire. And I had this reaction that was like, you don't even know the half of it. I felt really Mm -hmm. underestimated um, Mm. by the comment that my sweetheart had made. And my sweetheart and I are still together. I love them dearly. But Mm -hmm. it really got me thinking about the ways that um, I've experienced desire, the way that desire has been figured. And I think maybe just being outside of, you know, my home base, being in a country where I speak a little Spanish, but not much, just kind of unsettled me and put me maybe in a place that felt similar to where I was when I was experiencing those, um, experiencing some of the things I describe in the essay. And I actually just wrote the draft out by hand, almost, I mean, it's changed, it's been edited, and maybe we'll talk about that later. But Mm -hmm. I think I really wanted to explore what that moment of desire meant for me. And And just, I remember sitting on some steps, some stone steps somewhere, (laughs) and starting to write about it.
0: Oh, that's so great. That's a great visual. Mm -hmm. Um, I really love where this essay starts um, because, uh, you know, the part that you read, because we have so many expectations about this situation. You know, it's a stranger. He's an older man rolling down his window, inviting a young woman to get in his car, And and I mean, the paragraphs even acknowledge it, you know, that we all know better than to get in this car. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, that's where the essay takes us into his car, sort of against our better judgment. Um, Did you always plan to start there? Can you talk about just putting together that opening?
1: I think that that opening is pretty much like it was when I wrote that draft out by hand. Uh, occasionally I am blessed by the gods (laughs) that all sort of have this instinct, but I think part of what it was is that that moment for me was a moment of real awareness and consciousness on some levels, right? Like on another level, I was about to do this thing that everybody I'd loved all my life had told me don't ever do. But I think because there was so much happening for me in that moment, as a younger woman, emotionally, the setting. I just remembered it really vividly, and it felt like the place to start. It felt like, um, you know, I have other pieces where I think people will ask, well, where does the story really start, right, especially when I write fiction? But this was, for me, both intuitive and also just true to the events as they unfolded. So it felt really natural, and I never auditioned other openings.
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting. I also really love the mention of the cherries because there's this feeling of sort of appetite in it, you know, washing them in the bag and eating so many that you feel sick. And it's it's such a a great detail to include. thank you. As I'm sure you know, the common focuses on on work with a modern sense of place. And people often ask what that means. You know, they ask Mm -hmm. us what place means in writing. Um, And from now on, I just want to show them this paragraph in your essay when you show us um, the Stranger Jay, his bare fridge, and there's only like ham and cantaloupe and water. <laughs> and I want to show them how just like being in that apartment, standing in front of the nearly empty fridge, opens up this whole world into Jay's life, this like lonely bachelor existence. Um, it's, you know, it's just a, a really great moment for how place can, can evoke all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes people think of place as just like the description of where you are or something like that. Um, what can you tell us about getting these places right, whether it's Jay's apartment or these mm-hmm. places where you walked, I mean, from from memory two decades after being there? Like, how do you make sure that these memories um, feel fresh and evocative and also that they sort of, like, pack that punch for readers?
1: Mm-hmm. Those, that's a really great question. I First, I think I would just say that, you know, I think there are different writers who have aspects of writing or storytelling that really resonate with them, and places one that really matters to me. Um, I'm not alone in this, but I feel uh, I have a purple passion, maybe I would say for place. You know, you mentioned in my bio that I grew up in Wyoming. And, um, but you're talking about place, not just as landscape, but about how, you know, that refrigerator can be a place. And I just will say that for me as a writer, that those kinds of moments are the places where I often feel compelled to start writing. And there are often other aspects of storytelling and essay writing that I have to bring myself um, toward more. They, it feels like maybe it takes a little bit more work. Um, mm. And, you know, you asked this really powerful question about memory because there are some memories that, at least as they figure in my mind, they they feel very like, I remember those cherries really clearly. Um, and how I felt kind of silly, like, you know, my mother always told me to wash fruit before we eat it. So I felt like, you know, I can't yeah. just eat these cherries. I don't know, you know, are there pesticides on them? I, uh, mm-hmm. I need to wash these cherries. So I remembered that I put water in the sack and kind of shook it around and that I felt kind of silly doing that. I mean, it was a time in my life where I just felt a lot of insecurity and embarrassment in general. But there are a number of moments from this essay that I just remember really clearly. And so I think that moment with the cantaloupe and the, you know, the the ham and the milk and the water, I just remember thinking that's all that's in here. I was really struck by it because for me, having a full refrigerator is like the thing you do to feel safe and comfortable. And it just, um, so I remember that really clearly. And the thing that's interesting about it, Emily, is that I don't think I realized until later what those items mean. You know, so I think there's also a way I interpreted them, but when I shared that moment with my friends who've lived in France, they were like, oh, totally. You know, that not, you not prosciutto, but ham. And Mm. they could totally see the plastic package, but to me, those items sort of seemed sad together, but to, I think someone else, they were like, that sounds like a really good meal. <laughs> <That> sounds like <laughs> It's not sad at all. He's really, you know, he's provided for himself. So, um, so I think that, uh, sometimes even memories or moments might stand out and I don't know what they mean. Totally. There are other moments in the essay that I feel like I had to moments of memory that, um, came after being encouraged by other readers, came after encouraging myself, that feel accurate and that feel um, potent and poignant, but they didn't come in the first round. And so I think I continue to try to remind myself that there will be those images that stand out really starkly, but even though I might remember them clearly or see them or they come in technicolor, that there are others that are there too. And that even with the ones that come in technicolor, I have to give myself some time to interpret what they actually mean because I may not have, I may not see them in all of their nuance, see those details in all of their nuance. So I think just continuing to plumb an image and ask myself what was there, it's incredible what we can remember. And <laughs> then if I'm able to, to fact check those memories with other people. Um, this was very solitary. I have no idea what Jay is doing now. And so I, you know, I didn't write an email to say, mm-hmm. Hey, do you remember, do you yeah. remember <laughs> having Volvic and ham? Um, <laughs> but I do like to check my memories against other people's not to, uh, not because I distrust myself, but because it's fickle.
0: Yeah. And it's such a personal thing too. I'm trying to mm-hmm. write something right now that's sort of based on a lot of memories from a long time ago. And, um, you know, what stands out to you and what feels important to you might not actually be what's super important to like the senior writing or, or the, the idea you're trying to get across. And I think, you know, yeah, when it's something that happened to you, sometimes you do have to rely on other readers to kind of help you see that balance. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I feel like there's a really interesting tension in this piece that centers around desire, um, mm-hmm. like desiring someone and wanting to be desired. And then on the other hand, there's this disgust with sort of the dance that women go through to make themselves desirable. Oh, yeah. Um, you, you call them self-effacing manipulations. Can you talk more about that theme in this piece?
1: Um, I think that that theme, it's in this piece, but I see it in my work and in my life and other places. Yeah. Um, I guess I've always just wondered, and this was something I think the Adrian of that time was contemplating, certainly around Elle and then the experiences that I was having. Do I have to not be myself in order to be desirable um, or to be desired? Like it just to, maybe it was naivete, but it just totally baffled me and it disgusted me. <laughs> I don't think I understood at the time how um, how people can take on personas in their in their. Uh, acts of seduction, how those things can be part of the fun for them, part of the play. Mm -hmm. But I think what I also didn't have words for at the time, but is maybe coming out in that phrase that you called out, Emily, is that I think I really was picking up on the male gaze Mm -hmm. and was really disgusted by it and felt like it was uh, limiting and a trap for everybody involved. And I'd also just had many, many women in my life, very dear to me, that I would see when they became that what they would become when they were around someone they were attracted to, and I felt like they were often dumbing themselves down or making their desire less complicated than it was actually in order to in order to be desirable. And so I just I feel like those kinds of manipulations end up putting barriers up between people. I mean, I. Everybody should have their kink. Everybody should get their groove on. they <laughs> mm-hmm. want to get their groove right. on. But I think there was something there for me. I mean, I'm using language in the essay that really feels like a kind of moral revulsion, a sort of disgust. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what I'm talking about. It's like, you know, you do you, do your thing. But I see you facing who you are for this person. Mm-hmm. Why would you do that? What would happen to your desire if you were fully inhabiting yourself and in your desire at that time. So, you know, I just think from the ways that I would see people manipulate um, their bodies and their faces, uh, their intelligence, I just, it's always seemed like the real perversion to me. I don't know. I'm still naive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I think that um, it's something I'm certainly troubling through in this essay. And I think I continue to trouble through because there are a lot of things that we talk about knowing on a cognitive level, but then when it comes down to what we do in love and romance and intimacy and sex, etc., I don't know that we always, you know, it doesn't always add up. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but I've gone <laughs> no, off on definitely. enough of a tangent that I think I'll stop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just sort of nodding quietly here because, uh-huh. uh, yeah, I really feel that this, that knowing about all these things and knowing about how it works and everything doesn't sometimes stop you from getting caught up in it as well yourself.
1: Right, <laughs> right. You yeah. Yeah. Or if I can just say briefly, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like uh, my critique of my friend Elle was, and I actually, she, she might've actually said that, but at the, at the time I think I couldn't see it to just say, you know what? I just want somebody to sleep with and I'm just going to sleep with this person right now. Cause I want somebody to, you know, in my bed that I think is just totally fair and honest, as opposed to, you know, starting to pretend that we have feelings for people that we don't have or, you know, pretending that we don't have feelings for people that we have. So I just think that those kinds of distortions to me, I, I've always just sort of, you know, they've repelled me in a way. And I, that is not me taking a moral high ground (laughs) at all. It's just, I can just feel it in my body that I'm just like, I don't know that I want to do that. I don't think that's right for me.
0: Yeah. And I am, I mean, I also don't want listeners to think that, that that your essay is all sort of negative, you know, about these things, because I think the reason that that moment stood out to me in the essay is because there is so much desire and so much sensuality and, and, um, eroticism to these encounters and to the essay itself and the language and everything. And so it really, it just brings, brings forward that tension for me. Yeah.
1: Thanks for saying that.
0: So your father appears in in just a few brief mentions in this essay, but, but I just love him in it. Mm. He seems so kind and wise and warm. And I imagine it's sort of hard to distill someone down and capture that essence, especially in, in just a few lines. Was there a process for that, or or is that one of those things where it just kind of comes naturally based on what the piece needs from that moment?
1: I think it's a combination of that, the latter, what you just shared, and also that I think my father was someone who just was just such a character that there's a lot of material to work with. And um, I think it's true for me and for everyone who loved him that he, he was someone whose language, whose use of speech, and the way he expressed himself was so, it was just, you know, his name was XL and like, you could just hear XL. And so those phrases that are in the essay, you know, they're, they're things that he said to me and, and in these occasions. And so it was really, I feel like I just know him so well, you know, and he, he died in 2004, I think, but he's proven to me that uh, that experience uh, has proven to me that it's possible to continue to get to know someone and to love them and to have a relationship with them even after they've left their body. So he was not in the earlier drafts of the essay, but I think as I started um, revising it and editing it based on some feedback from people, it really came to me that part of what was kind of in my conscience as these things were happening. Um, was the voice of my father and the connection to trains and to travel. And so um, so he's someone that I'm able to hear and in some other pieces I've written, I'm able to, he just needs a few brushstrokes and then it feels like you see him. And I think that's just his gift to me.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, mm-hmm. That, yeah, that's really lovely. And, I you know, I definitely don't want to give it away and I want people to read the essay, but the the scene at the end mm. that sort of concerns Elle and, and your father and stuff is just really packs a punch. It's very powerful. Thank you. I'm always curious about how writers approach the revision process, mostly because I haven't figured out my own revision process yet. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah would you tell us about revising this piece, uh, how different it is from the first draft? I mean, I, you talked a little bit about having other readers and that kind of thing mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I I think this this essay expanded. It was shorter when I first um, when I first wrote it and so I wrote it out by hand and then I typed it out and I know I made some changes there. But it was interesting because I'd written the essay and I don't know if you have this experience, Emily, I'm sure it's always for me a bad sign when I'm like, this is pretty much perfect. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And I, I really don't feel that about my work very frequently, but there were, I think part of what had happened is that the language was operating in a way that felt really honest and true to me. I didn't feel like it was trying to, um, there are other pieces of writing I've done where I can be very um aerobic with the, just mm-hmm. like I can pull out all the stops. Right. And I think this is a, you know, an essay that clearly cares about language and image and all those things, but I just felt like it was, um, it felt straightforward almost in a way that was different mm-hmm. from either writing. And I, I, I really felt when writing this essay that I'd come into a new kind of writing for myself. So it was big for me in that way too. It was big in mm-hmm. the sense that I was remembering some things that I hadn't thought about that were key to me. But I, you know, I read it and I felt like, yeah, I can, you know, sometimes we'll read a piece or at least I will. And I'll feel so ecstatic about it when I write it. And then I'll come back a few days later or a week later, or a year later. And I'll think, oh, oh no, 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 no. Um, <laughs> and I didn't have this reaction with this. So I think it made it a little more challenging for me to revise in the beginning, actually rather than having it be something that I thought, Ooh, this needs a lot of help. Um, So I've really come to depend on uh, careful and generous and thoughtful readers. And I'm lucky to have a number of them. And so after I was done with the draft of the essay in summer, fall, 2019, I shared it with one writing group. And then over the course of another year or so shared it with another um, few readers Um, and I think I sent it out to a few journals as well. And, um, it's actually been my good fortune that, uh, I'll send something out and it'll just get rejected by all the places I've sent it and it will make me go back and rethink things. And so, um, you know, and, and I think one editor had written that there were aspects of it that they admired, you know, just not right for us. So I really wanted to go back, um, One of the things that happened through the revision process, uh, it wasn't so much on the sentence level, but more on the developmental level, people were really encouraging me to talk more about Elle. She was Mm -hmm. very minimally featured in the earlier drafts of the essay. She was there for sure. Um, But people were kind of like, there's something going on here. (laughs) Like, (laughs) What are you holding back about her? So I feel like the process was really around, um, I feel like I had the structure of the essay there, but it was really about expanding some moments, allowing myself to, as we talked about earlier around place, hang out in place a little bit more, hang out in moments for additional beats, expand things, especially, you know, thinking about sensuality and being in France, one of those places that for me feels like it's just attuned to to the wonders of sensual pleasure, whether that's eating something or taking a walk or having a great conversation. So I think my revisions really worked toward, um, expanding that. And I just, um, you know, I kept drafts that I would go back to because I, I knew that I'd maybe overworked something. And then, um, in, in terms of the common, I got really great suggestions and feedback from Jenna. I'm really grateful. So I feel like it's a, you know, I've come b- to believe more and more that for, for me, writing is really a collaborative act. And, um, those earlier readers and suggestions that they made, I think ultimately made this a much more, uh, nuanced and thoughtful piece.
0: That's really interesting that, that Elle wasn't so heavily featured in the earlier draft. Cause yeah, it does feel like, like a real, a real heart there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, So you're an assistant professor of literature and creative writing at at Villanova University. What sort of courses are you teaching these days? Just because I'm curious.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So um, I work in a great department and I I really love my teaching at Villanova and I get to teach a number of different things. So I teach an introduction to creative nonfiction. Uh, We call it writing creative nonfiction. And I also teach a class on editing and publishing, which I really enjoy and students love too. And then, um, typically, I'll teach another few classes each year. One is a literary festival course that's co-taught, and that course has um, usually we'll read about four to five writers and have them come to campus. Um, so, one year Great. when I taught, you know, we had Ross Gay come to campus, and students read. Mm-hmm um, read his poetry and that's a really delightful class and students also do creative writing in it. So they practice writing poetry. They write short stories, mostly sometimes we'll have memoirists, um, come, but usually it's uh, poetry and fiction. Mm-hmm. And then I've taught classes on translation and, um, I've also taught, and this is a class I teach almost every year. It's called adaptation film as literature. And just thinking about, um, works of fiction and nonfiction that are adapted into film and what it means to pay homage to another work of art and how storytelling is translated from a text into, into a film. So those are some of the classes that I've taught in the last three or four years.
0: Those sounds so amazing. I'm so jealous of all your students. <laughs> I really, <laughs> I miss, I miss school. Like if Only it were up too. to me, I would just be in college forever. <laughs> so much fun to just engage with that material all (laughs) day long um yeah that sounds really wonderful I love that you teach a class on editing and publishing I I love seeing those sort of you know sort of the mechanics the behind the scenes that the you know the maybe less glamorous side of
1: being a writer and writing yeah 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 but they love it I don't know is there a class like that at Amherst?
0: Uh there 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 is or was um our Jen, our editor in chief, um mm-hmm. did used to teach a class um at Amherst that was sort of yeah, it was I mean, a lot of it was based on running the common and, and that sort <sighs> of editorial process um to sort of let students in on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and we have the common has a classroom program called the Common in the Classroom, um uh which basically enc- encourages teachers to like teach the common with their students, you know, get literary magazines in the hands of students, get yeah. them to know about submitting and about um, you know, reading, reading the really contemporary things that are coming out as opposed to, you know, not just the literary canon, of course.
1: That's great. Um,
0: Yeah. So it's, it's something that we, we get very excited about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, because I'm, I'm kind of curious, I think a lot about how to, how to teach creative writing and and how we all learn creative writing. And I think it's Mm -hmm. such a big industry these days, you know, everyone Mm -hmm. is teaching somewhere and, and learning somewhere on how to do creative writing. And, but it also feels so personal to me. So I was just wondering, like, do you have any thoughts about, like, what your personal approach to teaching something that's so personal is or, or like, what you feel, like, where you feel the students connect most with, with, with what you're teaching?
1: Mm. That's a really good question. And it was one I was thinking about as I was sort of tottering that around the house earlier today, <laughs> making mm-hmm. my um, making my lunch. And what feels most present for me right now in my teaching of creative writing, I think it's in general, but it also feels particularly present for teaching this nonfiction class, for example, Mm -hmm. is that I feel like part of what I'm trying to do is to create a space within the class where people, I don't know, I feel like I'm trying to create a kind of environment in which they can access some of these other things that are, it's, it's not just, I'm not just trying to like, you know, I want to create a a space where they can learn. I mean, all teachers want to do that, but I think (laughs) for me, it's about, uh, maybe it's about a kind of curiosity. So one of the things that I've had my students do is, you know, because it's such our tendency for all of us we will come into a room and if there's nothing happening right away, you know, we take out our laptops or our phones or whatever, And so I do little things like I have my students, um, you know, just check in with each other and, you know, ask the person next to you how they're doing. Just some of these things that may seem very rudimentary, but on one level, people are really relieved to do and to think about like, oh, yeah, there's somebody else in the world and they have a life happening. And this went well for them recently. And this thing's not going so well. So I think it and and I'm going to share the same with someone and someone cares to hear it. So I think maybe one thing I'm driving at and I hadn't thought through this before is that I want to make students aware of themselves as speakers and listeners and as being part of a larger audience. And not audience as some group of people they need to please or perform for, but really people who um, care what they have to say but want want that kind of care in return. And one of the things that really stood out to me this fall, and I think some of it is the age that we live in. I think some of it is um, the pandemic and the summer of 2020 and our continued racial reckoning, the role of violence and um, disinformation and misinformation in our culture. But I felt like my students this fall really got into vulnerability, Mm -hmm. like a fierce kind of vulnerability in a way that I hadn't seen them do before. I think they understood that that is a kind of superpower. And um, you know, and certainly for the teaching of nonfiction, I think they really can see how when you understand yourself as a character, and I think as Philip Lopate talks about sort of seeing yourself from the ceiling, that it opens up a lot of possibilities for understanding and interpreting ourselves and our world and our lives, and for seeing you know, the magic around us, for being present for what's happening. And that, you know, I think some of the things that I revised in this essay were about doing that work too. That in the earlier drafts of the essay, I think I was a lot harder on Elle. And I think I was actually harder on Adrian too. But as I got some distance and some curiosity, I felt like, oh yeah, maybe this other thing was happening too. And I can have real care and love for 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 both of them, for all of these people. And um, so that's one of the things that I hope to do. And then I also think that, you know, as you were saying, by having, you know, students, um, I think you called it common in the classroom. I feel like so many of the students who come into this class, they haven't really read contemporary nonfiction. So Hmm. they're like, this isn't Augustine's Confessions. (laughs) And you're like, no, (laughs) that's great too. But no, this is different. And I think they open up to the possibilities that the things that they already love in their lives, they could write something about that would be meaningful to them and potentially to another reader. So they loved love reading Roxanne Gay. <laughs> um, they loved reading um, essays about the body in particular. They loved reading food writing and nature writing totally turned them out reading Annie Dillard and these sorts of things. And like just being in nature and sitting outside and, you know, kind of, I, I've started as a teacher going back to the things that brought me delight, especially when I was a younger student and that when you're, you know, when I was in grad school would have been seen as cheesy and not cool, but like, you know, everybody brings something into the nature table or today we're just going to mm-hmm. get really creative and they eat that up. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to give the genre and give writing a good name. Mm-hmm.
0: That's that's such a good point. I had really not thought of it, but you're totally right that um, you know, in our the average person in their average daily life does not encounter a lot of creative nonfiction. Um and you know, as as a student coming into college, you might have you've probably read some short stories that in your English classes in high school and that kind of thing. But yeah, probably not a lot of essays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I continue to be jealous of all your students.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I'm with you. I'm ready to, um, <laughs> I think I would get a master's in library science if that were my next degree, I think. Um, but I I think I got to tap out um, <laughs> and just yeah, read as I, many I, books as I can.
0: I often refer to my, my, I did uh, my M.A., um in literature in England and it, I referred to it as book club because I really felt like I was like this is school. I just have to read all these good books and talk about it with other right. people. <laughs> right. It was so lovely. Yeah. Oh. So the common is based at Amherst College and for some reason when I read your essay I sort of assumed that you had studied at Amherst. Um but but that's not right. You're a, you're a Hampshire alum. Oh, yeah. Um, I wonder What what can you tell us about your time at Hampshire and in the five college area? And like, if you feel like it changed anything in you in terms of either literary pursuits or or anything broader than
1: that, I was just really lucky to land there. Um, I was shaking my head as you asked that question, (laughs) like what (laughs) didn't change Emily? I mean, when I arrived at Hampshire, I was a transfer student. Um, I had gone to the university of Wyoming for a year and just thought I will never graduate from college if, um, if it's about, okay, I know you want to take a French class and this, you know, this literature course, but this semester you need to do all these requirements. Um, and I just thought right. I won't, I won't be able to do that. So one of my poetry teachers at the university of Wyoming, David Rombit, hipped me to this book, colleges that Change lives. And so long story short, I ended at Hampshire because they have no grades or majors. And I thought, let me give these people a go. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Um, you know For me, Hampshire was a real revelation on a number of levels. One that has nothing to do with being in a classroom was that I worked on the farm there. And it was just very beautiful. Yes, And um, as someone who, you know, I really loved, I was an au pair after I graduated from high school in France, and then I traveled around with a friend. So I didn't go to college right away. And I had such wonderful food in France, but this was the first time I'd ever been near a farm my family, many of them were agriculturalists, but, you know, or some ranchers in Wyoming, but not if the growing season in Wyoming, I won't get into it. But anyway, I had never tasted (laughs) vegetables like this and Mm -hmm. seen flowers and tomatoes and all these things. And it just really opened me up. And I loved going down early in the morning and cleaning kale. So I just met really good people. And the other thing is I met people who were kindred spirits in a number of different ways. And one big way for me was that I think they really didn't feel like they fit in, you know, they weren't going to be English majors or economics majors or biology majors. Mm-hmm. Their, their interests were very, they wanted to work on projects and their interests mm-hmm. were very eclectic. So I was really inspired by the people around me and by my, by my teachers. Um, I made connections there and felt cared for there in a way I, I never anticipated. And interestingly, I actually went to study religion. And I think because I was like, I'm going to study religion and we're all going to share our mystical experiences. Right. I'd had a few experiences in my life that I was just like, whoa that's Mm -hmm. wild. And I thought we'd get into these religion classes and it'd be like your time in your MA in England that instead of talking about books, (laughs) we'd all talk about these moments where we, you know, seen light shoot out of our bodies. And (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, I I was quickly disabused of that notion. And I realized, Mm -hmm. I think what I really love about religion is the literature and the storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so at Hampshire, I started studying creative writing and there were some great teachers there. One of my teachers who's very beloved to me, Robin Cost Lewis, the poet, who at the time was actually writing prose, um, short stories. Uh, But just also being in the Valley, it was very open. You know, Wyoming is um, a conservative place. I didn't grow up in a conservative family. And I will just say that word means something totally different to me now than it did then. And I won't get into that. But (laughs) I just feel like living in the Valley was very freeing for me. Um, Okay. Yeah, it was great. Um,
0: Yeah, I love that. Um, Well, yeah, I can tell you that Hampshire is still beautiful, and I drive by, and I see, you know, on the farm, and they have animals there now and everything. It's so nice. It's great. (laughs) yeah, I really love it. They have a nice a, a nice little farm at, at Amherst College now, too. I, I went to Smith College, uh, and I think a big part of me going there was because they didn't have any distribution requirements, so no one was going to make me take math. And I was like, sign me up. This mm-hmm. is my place. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: That's so great. I worked at Smith for oh, yeah. four years in the admissions office.
0: Oh, great. Yeah. I, I mean, I really loved it there, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um. So always our last question for, for writers is just sort of what are you working on now? Like what's what's next? What should we look for from you?
1: Oh, my gosh, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Oh, um, no. That's a, a big one. <laughs> no, it's lovely to be asked. You know, it's lovely to be asked. Okay. So right now I'm working on a novel, um, and it's, uh, it's, an, it's kind of an adaptation or an homage of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. And without giving too much away, I'm writing it from the perspective of two mixed race black girls. So that's the kind of slant that I'm taking instead of the, mm-hmm. you know, the figure of the invisible man, the I, the experience of a black man in America. I'm thinking about the experience of these um, two mixed race black girls uh, in New York and really thinking about the we. So it's not um, it, it's told in the first person, but there is certainly a kind of consciousness toward uh, what it means to be part of a we. So I'm working on that, and that's really my that's really my work right now. There are other things, side projects that I have in mind. For instance, um, I've been writing essays about Wyoming and um, have published a handful of them that are really driven to explore this kind of intersection of my family. So I, you know, I have my father who is a black man from Southern California, who ends up in Wyoming. And then I have my mother's family who, you know, who homesteaded there. And just really using these two aspects of my family tree to think more deeply about the way um, race and identity have played out in Wyoming across time. So um, I have a series of essays planned for that book that I call Interocean. And, and that's a book that I'm really eager to get back to. in one, because I think it will give me a chance to go home to Wyoming and see it in a way that I think you just, I just see things differently when I'm working, um, as a writer and a kind of love and generosity and curiosity and, and, um, generous critique that I don't have when I'm just kind of going home to, um, hang out on the porch. So, um, so that project is something that really matters to me. And then, you know, on the side, I really feel like, um, one of the things that struck me, I'm fortunate right now I'm on a sabbatical, and I thought a lot about at the beginning of my sabbatical how when I was younger, um, I would just read, especially my 20s, ravenously and just get so excited and turned out by books. they I mean, I just felt like my mind was being blown continuously when I was in France as an au pair for the first time I read Beloved. I don't know that I'd ever even heard of Toni Morrison. And I just wanted to get back to that kind of reading. And I think that's actually a big part of my work right now, which is reading in a way that's not about career. It's not about um, making sure I've, you know, understood the theory of such and such. It's really about being in love with ideas and language and what authors can do, and then writing my own little notes about it, my own um, maybe my own little commonplace book. I don't know. So that Mm -hmm. actually feels like maybe one of the most important projects I have right now, because it's just about getting back to that sensibility back to that place that after years of training, um, that I, I'm ready to be again in that state of wonder.
0: Mm, That sounds so nice. Um, yeah, I've been sort of feeling that way too. I wonder if that's sort of in the water right now.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, I hope so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just, um, Yeah, feeling like, uh, you know, obviously I do lots of reading for work and Mm -hmm. then I'm always trying to write. And so sometimes books felt like just another job I had to do. And I'm, yeah, really enjoying getting back into them and just Mm -hmm. disappearing in them. Yeah. Mm, That's great. (laughs) Well, Adrian G. Perry, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great to talk with you. This was so much fun.
1: Oh my gosh, my pleasure. And thank you for these fantastic questions, Emily. Really appreciate it.
0: I really just I enjoyed it. any any excuse to spend more time in your essay and think about it more. It was really great. Oh, thank you, listeners. You can read Adrian's story and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.